3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. It's the last day of January. My name is Evan Wallace. It is Monday, 31st of January. You are listening to 3CR Breakfast. And it's an absolute pleasure to have your company on the show today. Um, what do we have lined up on our show for the last day of January? Well, we have a stack of great interviews. On the show today, we're speaking with Tiffany Kosh, who's going to be talking about the role of synthetic biology and conservation. We're speaking with Erin Sebo about the wordle phenomenon that has hit the world. And then finally with Stephen Cook, who is going to be talking us through recent findings from the Gandalf Foundation survey on contemporary understandings in Australia of the Holocaust. It is the last day of January. How has your January been? I know that for a lot of people out there, it's been a pretty challenging month where there might have been weeks and time spent in in isolation. We know that across the community, Omicron has been wreaking havoc and disrupting a lot of people's lives over the month. And if that's been the case for you, then I hope that you've been able to get through it as best as possible. Hopefully, too, that there are people who have been able to have a bit of summertime fun as well, whether it's been seeing live music, which has started to re-emerge again within Melbourne, or perhaps you've had the opportunity to travel a little bit. That's what I've had the chance to do over the, the last week. I've been in southern New South Wales. I kicked off just before January 26th and made my way up to Wagga and then to Queanbeyan and Yass and Bega. And asking Australians a bit about their hopes and goals for 2022 and also what they'd like to see in this or at this year's election. So the issues and the themes and the topics that they'd really like to see debated and discussed. And it'll be a real pleasure to be able to play you some of that audio a little bit later this morning. Um, one thing that we love on Monday breakfast on 3CR is excellent music. And on the show, you'll be hearing the likes of Baker Boy. You'll hear Martha Marlowe, Finley Kay, Isabella Khalif. You'll hear Sons of the East. But right now, it is all the way from Iceland. It's Way Down We Go by Kalio. Hope you enjoy. This is 3CR Monday breakfast. It's 7.03am and it's great to be spending this morning with you. And where down we go Come as we are 
That was Kelly O with Way Down We Go. You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Hope you are having a good morning. That song came from the 2016 AB album. Love the grunt, love the blues, love the soul. What an awesome track. It is 7.07am. Let's check out the news headlines. In Central Australia, Central Australia Aboriginal Congress Acting Chief Executive Josie Douglas has called for a complete lockdown of the region with fears of what she has labelled as a tsunami of COVID cases. The Congress has called for a seven-day lockdown in the area incorporating Alice Springs and surrounding communities to alleviate what's been described as a dire situation. Yesterday, the NT recorded 849 new COVID cases with 121 people in hospital. Keeping in mind that the NT only has a population of a quarter of a million or 250,000 people. Michael Gunner, Chief Minister, has dismissed the claims and has argued that Omicron is too infectious for lockdowns and lockdowns to be effective. Come back to COVID in just a moment, but in Southern Africa, it's estimated that 86 people have been killed by Storm Anna, with the death toll likely to increase dramatically as the full situation of the storm is made known. In Madagascar, Mozambique and Malawi, hundreds of thousands of people have been affected as humanitarian workers have been cut off from delivering crucial aid due to the destruction of key infrastructure, such as bridges and roads. And then finally, looking at the overall impact of the Omicron variant across the country, well, the death toll is on the rise. Yesterday, at least 88 people died as a result of COVID-19, with 52 people dying in New South Wales, 20 in Victoria and 13 in Queensland. It's a really, really scary situation that's out there. If I cast my mind back to a couple of years ago, or even just last year, how the community would respond just to one death from COVID-19 was a profound and, and strong reaction where there would be a level of mourning and acknowledgement that was led by political leaders. We've really reached that point now where the virulence and the deadliness of COVID-19 has 
been accepted by the political establishment here in Australia and makes for what I feel is a level of desensitisation to what is really a, a horrible, horrible um, um, phenomenon that is occurring here in Australia, around the world as well too. It's scary, it's really quite daunting the effect that the variant continues to have that COVID-19 has and I think it's really important to acknowledge the the lives that are being lost to to COVID. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. That was the news headlines for Monday the 31st of January. Right now it's time for who has been a splash of joy in, well, this year, last year, if anyone's an AFL fan, they would have loved his performance at the 2021 AFL Grand Final. It is the wonderful Baker Boy and Yimel with their song, Ride. 3CR Monday Breakfast. I'm gonna get it, I can't make a cartoon But I'm gonna get it, I can't make a cartoon 
before. I'ma light it up like a candle. Come and make it do a hot to the handle. I think I need to chill. Hey, man, man, you make a good man. Make it better, make it better. We know bushfires can be devastating, that they change direction in seconds and move faster than anyone can run. But extreme fire danger days are rare. So before you travel, check the fire danger rating. And if it's extreme or above, don't travel to those areas. If you're already there, leave. How well do you know fire? Plan, act, survive. Go to emergency.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. I hope everyone is staying safe over the course of this summer. It is definitely a hot and fire-prone period. Just thinking about the last number of weeks that we've had in Victoria, it's been pretty tenuous with the potential for bushfires. And we know that the season definitely continues on into March. And if you travel across regional Victoria or southern New South Wales, then you'll see really how dry the land is and the likelihood of a, a fire is always there in any summer, uh, on any day in Australia. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. Evan Wallace is my name. It is 7.14, top of 31 degrees today in Melbourne. If you're listening to the show on 3cr.org.au, thanks for tuning in online. And if you're listening via the radio on eight on double five am pleasure to have your company. As I said at the start of the show, I was on the road for the last few days traveling in southern New South Wales for a podcast project that I'm working on. The project is all about people's sense of home, but as it's January and it's an election year, I was also keen to explore people's hopes for 2022 and what issues they'd like to see discussed and debated at this year's election. This morning, you'll hear from Stuart and Di. Stuart is a social worker who lives in Canberra but works in Queanbeyan. Di is a retired Wagga local who I met outside the gelato store on the 26th of January. They both bring contrasting perspectives to what it means to be in Australia in 2022. Start with Stuart and his excellent community-minded approach and international outlook. Liked how he was able to put contemporary developments in Australia into context, how he's able to talk about community life relative to his home in Scotland and what he's hoping for in 2022. This is Stuart, who I met in Queanbeyan. Look, um, I actually stay in Canberra, but I work in Queanbeyan and there's a good sense of community here. It's a, it's a pretty easy, laid-back kind of place. A lot of people bag it, yeah, but uh, because I work here and I have done for quite a while, you get to know people, so there is that sense of community. Tell me about some of that connection or the differences between Canberra and Queanbeyan. Look, I think there's a bit of a mentality, and I've heard this uh, being said more than once, that this Queanbeyan is known as struggle town, which... I really question it, it's judgmental, but then again, people have their own opinions, but a lot of people don't really know Queen Bion before they're actually bargaining it, yeah? Mm. But um, look, as I say, 
friendly people. I mean, obviously there's a lot of issues in Queen Beyond, but it's the same throughout the world. Yeah? Yeah. Um, I think that's a really good reflection, good way of putting it. And I suppose if you put it in a global context or a wider Australian context, we're faring it's, pretty well. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of issues, yeah, but they can be minuscule in comparison to what's happening yeah. global-wise. But, look, I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoy coming here. It's just something that I do first thing before I go to work. Mm-hmm. And the guys in the shop and just people around this area, you get to know them. Yeah. So people are pretty easy going. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And I tend to find people do a bit more here for you than people in the ACT. <laughs> I think yeah. that's really nice. It's bizarre, but it's true. Well, that's my opinion. Yeah. One thing we're asking on the show today, and we're still in the last week of January, is about people's hopes and goals or resolutions for 2022. Yeah. Do you have any goals or hopes that are in place for this year? Look, I mean, much like the rest of the world, we'd love to move on from what's been happening over the last two years. I mean, Australia in itself, it was bushfires. Now, we've just continued with a two-year of this COVID. For me, it's like I've got family back in Scotland that I'd love to go visit. I'd love to have them come here, which was planned two years ago. So really, it's a bit of, and let's move on from this, and hopefully things kind of progress positive that we get to kind of live with it, because I don't think it's going, going to go away quickly. So my goal is just to be able to move out of Australia, to be able to go back and to being able to visit people around the world and likewise let people come here because it's all about the economy. So it's my goal is that, to be healthy and ensure that everybody in my family and friends are healthy as well and we can move on from us. Very well said. For you, are you feeling optimistic or pessimistic about the year ahead? Look, I'm, I'm, my glass is always half full, <laughs> so... Yeah, yeah, I think people need to be kind of understanding what's happening, but be responsible, mm-hmm. but also and yeah, take actions to prevent things from escalating. If you're asked to isolate, well, you do, you do it. And again, it's up to the individual if they choose not to get vaccinated. Yeah, fine, that's your choice. But bear in mind, you made that choice. So if things evolve to a point that you are the one that's going to actually suffer through your choice. You need to bear that as well. And I'm all about freedom of speech, absolutely. But, yeah, yeah, look, it's kind of onwards and upwards, and I am a positive guy anyway. So, yeah, definitely, we'll move on from this. (laughs) It sounds as though COVID-19 is very front of centre for you. Is it going to be one of the most important issues when thinking about how you might vote or how you're going to think about the election this year? Yeah, look, I mean, I wouldn't say I was politically motivated, but ultimately, in this country, you need to vote or either you're basically, you're penalised. So, look, I I try and keep an eye on things and I'm pretty sceptic about which party gets in because there's a lot of promises and when they're in, things change. But, look, I mean, I've been here now 10 years and I can't falter. Uh, Julia Gillard, the stuff that she brought in when I was here. But I'm not going to get into a political debate because it's not my forte. That's yeah. very fair. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, 
And also just thinking, thinking about the year ahead, sounds like there's a strong connection for you with, with Scotland. Is that a big thing for you, a hope to get back to Scotland, to do some travel, see friends and family this year? Yeah, look, I mean, it, it, I can take it or leave it, but it was more a fact that I've got family members that are they're getting on mm. and I know they're not going to be there forever. So it was just that worry that I might not get to see them in person. But ultimately, it's life. I made a choice to move here and these are sacrifices. Totally understand that. And I wouldn't have changed. I wouldn't have changed it. And they understand that as well. This is about me and my family creating a better life, more opportunities. Yeah. And people in Australia, I don't think they realise that. You've got a margin, you've got a margin of people that totally get that we're in Australia, but it's a lot of people just don't understand how good they've got it. <laughs> I mean, honest, I mean, I say to people, maybe you should spend two weeks in an area that I grew up, then you'll see maybe struggles. When people mention this place, struggle town, they just... They're not looking further than the, the tip of their nose, really. Yeah. Yeah. Not much. Yep. Not the perspective that you'd like to see. No, no, no. And this is a fantastic place, mate. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Australia. Yeah, it's got its issues. Can't tell me anywhere else in the world it doesn't. But the economy, the lifestyle, and the opportunities. If you want to work, you work. There's no reason why you shouldn't be working unless you've got a disability, which is totally fair. But realistically, there's work here. Huh? And one final fun question and bringing things back to, to Queanbeyan. What are your must-dos or what would you recommend someone do if they're in Queanbeyan briefly and they're wanting to do something pretty enjoyable? Where would you send them? Oh, look, because I only work here, I don't spend any real kind of <laughs> social time here. But, look, I mean, there's a lot of charities, there's a lot of community-driven things, and it's about you stepping up, becoming proactive mm -hmm. and getting involved because there's always somebody needing some help with someone. My line of work, I work in a school, so we're... Because my line of work is directly involved with the pupils, I've also created these networks to local community supports. And for the size of Queenbeam, people wouldn't realise the amount of supports that are here. It's just about going out and accessing them. Reach out. Why not? Why wouldn't you? If they're there, they're there for a reason. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Stu, thanks very much for spending a bit of your morning with me. Yeah, no drama. Thanks yeah. very much, Thank mate. Thank you. That was Stuart, social worker who's from Canberra, living in Queanbeyan. Just in case you're trying to place Queanbeyan exactly on the map, it is just outside of Canberra. We're talking about a 20-minute drive to the east of Canberra, but very much in New South Wales. And for those of you who are going to be following the 2022 election very closely, it is in the infamous electorate of Ada Monaro, which traditionally the way that Ada Monaro has voted is the way that the country has decided to um, elect a, a government. So 
change oh I changed at the last election but it has very much been a bellwether seat and it will be a marginal electorate at this year's election I like Stuart's views I liked his easy approach to to life to you know, looking at things with a, a level of, of hopefulness to putting things very much in context as to what happens in in other countries and, and other places that was Stuart and you're about to now hear from Dai and I'm, as I mentioned I met Dai in Wagga Wagga um, about two hours due north of Albury, Wodonga. And I think Dai's views serve as a bit of a reminder of how complex people's outlooks can be. Some views that she has, they might turn a few listeners off, but she also has a big heart in other areas that come through super strongly. Started off by asking her how she would describe Wagga Wagga. This is 3CR Monday breakfast, and here's Dai from Wagga. Well, I think it's... Big enough to be big, small enough to be small. People are friendly and it's got everything you could ever want for you and your children. Mm-hmm. I like that. What would you say some of your favourite things are about Wagga? Good coffee shops. <laughs> yeah. Good coffee shops and good sports facilities and yeah. 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 What do you think makes it different to other places? In what respect? Like well, in all respects. Yeah, so think about other other towns and cities or maybe similar sized places in New South Wales. What do you think gives it to its own unique flavour? First of all, I think the climate, because you know what you're going to get. <laughs> Secondly, everyone makes everybody welcome in Wagga. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no hustle and bustle. Like, maybe... Bigger kind of city, but there's no hustle and bustle. Yeah, yeah, really that's what I like. Yeah, I like I like that a lot. <laughs> we're at the start of the year, and one thing that we're asking is thinking about people's hopes for the year. So we're still in January, and it's still a time when people have resolutions or goals for the year in place. Do you have any goals yourself for 2022? I don't really have goals because nobody knows what's around the corner. And even if you did have a goal, you may not be able to live that goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and COVID's going to be around for another two years. So I say you just live today. Live for the day, live for the moment. And hope that that everything's going to get a little bit better. Yeah. Mm. On that note, how have the last couple of years been for you? Actually, it's been pretty normal. Yeah. Because I still come down the street and had coffee while COVID was really rampant Mm -hmm. and, you know, cleaning the hands and and all that stuff. Hasn't really had an impact on me. Okay. Because I don't work, so, yeah. Yeah. Has not impacted. That's that's good to hear. That's really great to hear. This year it's a federal election year. A lot of big issues will be discussed and debated. What would you like to see be discussed at the federal election this year? Yeah, I'd like to see pensioners get some more money. But also I'd like to remind people that Scott Morrison has been through the toughest, toughest three years that anybody could live and all they do is put him down. I'd like to see people wake up. Can you do better? No, you can't. So I'd just like to see them all stop pushing pressure on the poor man and the government, um, and look at what they pay pensioners. Really wanting that attention to be shown on the conditions, the 
amount of money that pensioners receive? Anything more that you'd really like to be fleshed out? Well, a pensioner works all their life, pays their taxes, and then all of a sudden they're on this fixed little income. Pensioners that own their own home are okay. Pensioners that have to pay rent are struggling, like them to look into living costs, living conditions, and do something for pensioners. I'm not one. Fortunately, no, unfortunately, we live on our own money. But I know a lot of pensioners that struggle day to day. You've seen them doing it really tough. Yep. Really important issue to look at pensioners. I think that's uh, something that doesn't get much attention at Australian elections traditionally. Are you hopeful at all that there might be some attention? Oh, we're always hopeful. But, you know, they might put pensions up um, six, $6 and then put milk and bread and everything up and the pensioners no better off. Yeah. No, it's a big issue. Feeling optimistic or pessimistic about the year ahead? Optimistic. Yeah? Yep. What's behind the optimism? Well, something's got to give. <laughs> <laughs> something's got to give. And, yeah. and I'm optimistic that I'm going to be able to live an absolutely normal life without a mask. Um, and people are not dying um, and in hospital from COVID. Um, so, yeah, I'm optimistic. Yeah, brilliant. Love yeah. it. And then finally, a bit of a fun one. What would you say would be the must-do things to do in Wagga? So if someone's coming to town, they haven't been here, they're saying, hey, what should I do? Where would, where would you send them? Well, it, it depends on the people. If they're people with kids, mm-hmm. it's a lot easier for them to integrate because there's so much sport, so many good facilities, so many good schools. If you were just an older person like me, um, I would just embrace the layback attitude and still have the city um, shops and, and everything but the layback attitude and um, we have good clubs and pubs and restaurants and yeah love it <laughs> so much for chatting with me Di that's alright darling <laughs> That was Di from Wagga. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. You've just heard the perspectives of both Stu and Di, southern New South Wales, and it's a different world there, and different perspectives being shared, and it is 7.31am. Right now, it's time for Martha Marlowe with all of my days. Coming up after this song, we're going to be speaking with Tiffany Koch from the University of Melbourne, looking at the role of synthetic biology and conservation. This is 3CR. My name is Evan Wallace. Great having your company this morning. That ocean, grey sheet humming and the throat of blackbirds. I hear them listening as they go
Martha Marlowe with All of My Days Off, her album from last year, Medicine Man. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Evan Wallace is my name. It's 7.35am and it is excellent to have your company on the show today. In Australia, there are 67 species that are classified as being critically endangered, or to put it in another way, on the verge of extinction. Add to that another 172 species that are endangered and the countless numbers of animals overseas facing similar levels of threats and the reality of a mass extinction event appears perilously close. It's a situation that throws up all sorts of dilemmas for communities and scientists as we address what our obligations are to protect and preserve these threatened species. For Tiffany Koch, Research Fellow at Melbourne University's Faculty of Veterinary and Agricultural Sciences, it's a question that's very much front of mind. Thanks for joining us, Tiffany. 
Hi, thank you for having me. Tiffany, you've written in the conversation this week about an intervention method that you and your colleagues have developed that could give endangered species the features they need to survive in the wild. You've labelled it targeted genetic intervention. Let's start with what this actually involves. Yeah, so basically what we wanted to do is to develop a method that will allow species to to survive in the wild if a threat cannot be eradicated. And some threats are very difficult to eradicate, and one of these being infectious diseases. So basically what our method does is it changes the genetics of the organism to promote adaptation and allow them to survive in the wild with the threat. Fantastic. That's a, that's a really complex, complex um, a piece of work that, uh, that you've been working on with your colleagues. And I know that there's been all sorts of international collaboration on this. But let's pair it back a little bit because not all of us uh, who are aware of conservation issues have the same level of, of scientific knowledge that you do. And crucial to this targeted genetic intervention is the role of genome sequencing and can you tell us a bit more about how genome sequencing fits into the mix and how this is printing a potential game changer when yeah when thinking about your efforts and endeavors here yeah so that's really important because we actually have to understand the genetic basis of a lot of these traits that allow organisms to survive and um, if we don't have a reference genome um, for a species it makes it very difficult to do this which is 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 why this hasn't really happened until now. But now um, people are able to sequence reference genomes for any species in the world at a much cheaper price. Um, so, so, yeah, this is definitely much more feasible than it ever was. Wonderful uh, and, and really, really intriguing and, and also a phenomenon that you've drawn parallels with as well too. You've talked about the idea of artificial selection and how we might cultivate animals and plants as either food or pets. And when you're thinking about the risk-facing species around the globe, do you think it is really worthwhile to be applying a similar approach to wildlife and, and threatened species, taking what we've applied within, say, for instance, agricultural settings or domestic animal settings and, and applying it to um, and applying it to wildlife? Is it something that you're, um, you would really like to see expand uh, across into new frontiers? Yeah, I think so, Evan. I mean, this is largely theoretical at this point. So what I think needs to be done is we need to try it and test it and evaluate the risks very carefully. But um, as I say in my article, this is something that's been done in companion animals and livestock for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and can be done very effectively and safely. So I think it's something that we should consider for our endangered species. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in in your work, you've done a lot of work with uh, Australian frogs, and you've thought about how you might potentially apply these ideas and these approaches when when thinking about how we uh, support the countless numbers of uh, endangered uh, and threatened frogs within this country. Tell us a bit more about this work. Yeah, that's right. So there are about seven species of frogs in Australia that are highly threatened by an introduced fungal disease called chytridiomycosis. And what we're trying to do at our group at the University of Melbourne is to understand um, genetic features of these frogs that make them more resistant. And then that way we can hopefully help the frogs to become more resistant and be able to survive in the wild again someday. 
Yeah, okay. Um, and some of that work has been really specific as well, as my understanding is correct, with southern corroboree frogs? Yes, that's one of the main species that we're working with at the moment. Um, and that is because those spe- that species is really susceptible to the z- disease. And at the moment, they basically have to live in zoos. And so we would like to see these frogs in the wild again someday. So we're working very hard to try to come up with approaches that might work for them. I'd very much like to see that too. And for listeners out there, if they haven't seen a, a southern crawberry frog before, I think, A, they would be shocked by just how small they are. That was one of the things that really surprised me when, when seeing a, a southern crawberry frog. Um, but then also, too, their striking yellow and, and black striped patterns. What is it that you love about the southern crawberry frog? Yeah, I just think they're really beautiful. So, yeah, they have that bright black and yellow color. And they're also really round and kind of cute, squishy little frogs. And, and, <laughs> and they don't even really hop like a regular frog. They just kind of walk along really slowly. So, yeah, very interesting. For you, what's it been like coming from the States to Australia um, and, yeah, really engaging within the conservation debate here? What sort of differences and approaches have you found between the two countries since moving? Yeah, I guess the one thing that I've been really impressed with is is how involved the zoos are in conservation here. So um, they've been very supportive of our research and also willing to try something a little bit crazy. I mean, I don't think this is something that's even being considered in the United States and in many parts of the world, trying like a genetic intervention method to restore species to the wild. So I think it's really cool that, you know, the Australian um, the, the zoos and also the, the government, because our group, our research is funded by the Australian Research Council, funded, sorry, um, are willing to, to give us some money to try this and see if it's an effective approach. Really neat. You've written, though, about the trade-offs attached to targeted genetic intervention. For instance, the potential to make species more susceptible to different diseases if we increase their resistance to others. But from the sound of it and just from what I'm gaining from this discussion, from, from what I've read, really does appear that we're at a, a Hail Mary stage when it comes to conservation efforts. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So that's something that we would have to evaluate are, are the trade-offs to doing this. Um, but the way I see it, this species can no longer fulfill its role in the ecosystem. And the longer it's gone, the longer these changes might become permanent. So our goal is to try to get this species back in the wild and, and hope that these methods will allow it to persist for a long time in the future afterwards, but only time will tell. <laughs> so, Tiffany, what happens next when we're thinking about the world of targeted genetic intervention? So, as you've said, there's a lot that still remains very theoretical, but how do you see this body of work moving and changing over this year, over the next number of years, and, and debate around it as well too? Yeah, so basically what we're going to be doing ourselves is some experiments in the lab to try to understand the genetic basis of this resistance to the fungus, and then we're going to try to start um, increasing that in the frogs. And then, you know, this will be a very long-term project because we have to, at every stage, evaluate the safety and efficacy, and then also be involved with the local communities that will be impacted by this to make sure that, you know, everyone understands what's going on and is it okay with it. Um, because, yeah, our goal is to eventually release these frogs in the wild, but, yeah, that will be a long time in the future, and there'll be, have to be a lot of discussions in the meantime with everyone that might be impacted to, to make sure that everyone's on board with it. 
And if there's just one thing that you'd like to leave listeners with today to, to really think about when um, they consider targeted genetic intervention, what is it that you'd like to, to pose to them or, or have them um, sit with as they're eating their breakfast at the moment and they're thinking about the day ahead and they've uh, and TGI, targeted genetic intervention, comes into their mind? What is it that you'd really like them to know? Yeah, I guess I'd just like to say some people tend to be a bit fearful of approaches such as synthetic biology, and um, it's worth just reading about them a little bit. And although there are some risks, there are also many benefits that can benefit wildlife and even things like human health. So it's worth learning a little bit more about it before you make a decision about whether or not it's necessarily a, a good or a bad approach. Tiffany, it's been excellent having you on the show. Thanks so much for your thoughts and insights. Thanks a lot, Evan. That was Tiffany Kosh from the University of Melbourne talking about targeted genetic intervention and how that approach can be used to support conservation efforts. All right, it's time to have a bit of mellow time. This is a classic. It's a classic that's from Finley Kay. Um, for me, it sort of takes me to a tropical place. It takes me to those early moments in summer where things were, yeah, things were pretty smooth and you're by the beach or somewhere in the forest and having a calm, calm day. Hold on to those memories as things become busier again. This is Finley Kay and Even After All. Even after all The murdering Even after all Your suffering so you know I love you so You know I love you so and so Even after all I'll let you go on Sir, it's the order of the day I'll let you believe, sir. It's the order in this society. You know I love you so. You know I love you so and so. Even after all. This is my money, y'all. Man just feels satisfied. No competition, no competition at all. I just feel sad to start. Them eyes are gorgeous, girl. No demise, a prize. I got to raise it again. Them eyes are gorgeous. I must advance. I don't check for no superficial. It's got to be beneficial. These sonic fruits, these sonic fruits. Sides. These sonic fruits have got them moving around all right. Hyperplay, stepping and rising. Even after all 
murdering that go on Even after all Oh no You're suffering so You know I love you so You know I love you so and so Even after all You just survive, soldier mm-hmm. And your soul is beautiful And your soul is good Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. The 3 of us reckon 3CR is the best.
Melbourne Pride will be taking over Smith Street and Gertrude Street Precinct on Sunday the 13th of February between 11am and 9pm. This free event is a state government initiative delivered by festival partner Midsummer to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the decriminalisation of homosexuality in Victoria. The Fitzroy Precinct will be transformed into a huge street party with two music stages, activities, community stores and more. For more information, visit midsummer.org.au. Midsummer is a 3CR supporter. It's Monday breakfast, it's 3CR, it is 7.53am and my name is Evan Wallace. Just heard a couple of tracks there, it was Isabel Khalif with her song, Did You?, If you like that one, she'll be performing at the Queenscliff by the Pier Festival. That's at the end of March. And then before that, it was Finlay K, 1997 classic, super mellow with Even After All. I'm guessing that by about now you've heard of Wordle. It's hard to go a day at work or amongst friends or if you're up the street where a conversation about this online game isn't mentioned. Across the world, it's estimated that there are about 3 million Wordle players. And if you haven't been hooked yet, then think of it as something representing a hybrid between the the nine-letter target word contracted to five letters and a code cracker. Each day, a new five-letter word is put out to the world and you get six guesses to successfully guess the word as incorrect letters are eliminated, included but mislocated letters are acknowledged and correctly placed letters are confirmed. Erin Sebo is a senior lecturer in medieval literature at Flinders University, head of English there, and like me, is someone who has become very, very hooked on Wordle. Good morning, Erin. Good morning. First question for you is, have you done today's Wordle? No, not yet. <laughs> Adelaide is half an hour behind, so um, I got up and did this interview first, but it will be my next thing to do. I appreciate the prioritisation, <laughs> and I think that's uh, probably, probably a good way to, uh, to plan out the morning. It's this. I would say that today was the earliest wordle that i have done i did it with uh, a a five before um um <laughs> before the minute so i think it was five fifty a.m or something like that that i sent my mum um when exactly i finished the the wordle this morning um tricky one today i think um but uh <laughs> love to see how you go hey um erin what is it that you love about wordle look i think um Certainly for me, I really enjoy uh, the logic element of it because the logic, the way you kind of work out how to solve the game is based on your knowledge of English words, your knowledge of what kinds of letter combinations come up, what kind of sound combinations come up, Um, particularly when you have a misplaced letter, so you know it goes somewhere and you're trying to work out where that letter could possibly go. Your ability to narrow that down is really based on English words. So as somebody who loves the English language and loves English words um, and who loves codes and puzzles, that, that really appeals to me. But I think the other bit of it is just that it, it's, it's become such a community thing too. It's become something that people share on their Facebook, they share in uh, groups. My family uh, has a group chat where we share um, our Wordle scores in the morning. Um, <laughs> I'm not in the same state as the rest of my family. Most of my family's in Melbourne. Um, so particularly through the pandemic when I really didn't get to see them, um, you know, these little things were actually really nice things to share. So, yeah. You're, um, 
giving us a bit of a sense as to, to how huge it is and the different senses of community that are attached to this game. And that's something that I'd like to tap into. In your article in The Conversation, you've written about how it has become a phenomenon. Can you give us a bit more of a sense as to how huge it's become across the globe? <laughs> Look, I, I can, and I think... Um this has been my experience both sort of anecdotally amongst my friends, but also, you know, the reach has been extraordinary. So um, I, I mentioned in the article the Mumbai police are using Wordle memes uh, to spread the message to wear masks and be safe with COVID. Um, uh, you see it in political campaigns, but also a range of very high-profile people. You also see it right uh, across the world, including in countries which aren't English as a first language country. Um, we're starting to get um, Wordle versions of Wordle uh, for different languages popping up, including medieval languages, which is very exciting for me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So <laughs> it, it really is a very, very widespread phenomenon. Um, I think I mentioned in the article somebody actually measured how much the conversation about Wordle grows on Twitter each day and apparently it grows 26%, which I guess is also why some people, um, uh, you know, sort of hang their heads when they see the little Wordle squirrels um, appear in their social media. Wow, that's, that's huge. That's just exponential, that increase in, in interest and, and engagement there. I'm curious to see whether it's something that will stick and, and, and will last. I mean, I think people perhaps had similar sceptical views when Sudokus were first released uh, a number of years ago, and then they've just become part of the institution of, of puzzles and code cracking within, well, across the world, really. But let's come back to Wordle and the game itself. You've written that Wordle is closer to code cracking than crosswords. Tell us a bit more about this. Yeah, so crosswords work really, uh, you know, you have, I suppose it depends on whether you're doing a simple one or a a cryptic one, but you have some kind of a clue that you have to decipher. And it's really based on your knowledge of words and word meanings. And you obviously have to think of a word that's the right number of letters for the spaces you've got, but it's really about deciphering the word meaning. But this is much more just based on your knowledge of uh, sound combinations because you don't have any kind of a clue about the meaning of the word. And that's much more the position that people are in when they are breaking codes, at least in the pre-computer era. Uh-huh. Um, and certainly uh, linguists, when we come across uh, ancient languages or under, you know, um, unknown scripts, that's also the position where we have a series of symbols and we have no information when we start about what those symbols might mean and you have to start putting it together from context. So, again, I think that's probably part of why Wordle appeals to me. And one of the things that I'm really fascinated about is that it appeals to so many other people as well. I think linguists like me have kind of thought of those as quite specialised skills, Um, but it turns out they're very, very popular in the wider community as well. You've written that some of the most successful code breakers of all time were linguists. You must be pretty proud about this. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) I am actually. Particularly when you look at um, linguists, in you know the linguists who really made those first discoveries of ancient languages, or um, you know the very very first linguists who were putting together the relationships between languages, the kind of work they do is 
absolutely extraordinary. It's the kind of work that we would always delegate to computers now. We would never, ever imagine that humans could do. And you see the same kind of thing in uh, code crackers. There are a series of code breakers, particularly in the Second World War, who were very famous linguists, including um, uh, some of those who are involved in the the cracking of uh, Linear B, which is a particular kind of ancient Minoan script that was very, very difficult to break and remained a real mystery for a long time. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting thing. One of the things that I really love in your article, Erin, is the link or the relationship between the emergence of new conventions in written English and Wordle. And I'm wondering whether you think 100 years ago or even 50 years ago, whether it would have just been completely impossible to have a game like Wordle with such different interpretations or variants or variations as to how uh, English is spoken and, and understood and, and, and contrasting and contradictory conventions across the world. Yeah, look, I I think there would have been, uh, it certainly would have been difficult. And I definitely think that a much, much, much smaller percentage of the population could have played it. Obviously, there are, you know, highly literate uh, people uh, 100 years ago, but you're probably not talking about the same range across the population as well. And that was one of the things that I spoke about in the article. I was talking about how much time this generation spends reading. And it's not just that it's a lot, it's that it's almost everyone, including people who say they don't read. When Whenever I say that, people always say back to me, no, 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 I don't, I don't really read at all. Um, and then I start to go through the amount of time they spend emailing or even just sort of on social media. And even though that's not necessarily sustained reading, it's just constant reading. The world at the moment is really dependent on reading and writing in a way that it it definitely wasn't, um, you know, even a couple of decades ago. So I definitely think that that is part of the the popularity of Wordle too. This is just a generation that spends a lot of time looking at words. <laughs> That's a really excellent way of, of putting that. And you talked about it, its popularity, and I wonder how much of it comes down to the fact that it's also free. It feels like it's a, a white elephant or a unicorn in the internet world, that this is a <laughs> game that doesn't have any profit motivations. Look, I definitely think that it, it is a very wholesome game in lots of ways. I think the other thing is that uh, it own, uh, the game only releases one puzzle a day, uh, and it's the same puzzle, so everybody's working on the same puzzle. Um, but that that's also, I think, a big thing for a lot of people. Almost everything on the internet is encouraging you to binge in various ways. It's encouraging you to kind of participate in, in behaviour that's maybe not good in the sense that, um, you know, it kind of it helps you procrastinate or it distracts you from things you should be doing or, or whatever. And this is exactly the opposite. You just have one puzzle and it's done, um, and then you get to do one the next day, but you absolutely kind of can't go into a binge cycle with it. And a lot of people have said to me that one of the things they really like about it is that it doesn't take a lot of time, that it doesn't encourage them into bad patterns. It's just a sort of a, a lovely little thing that they do every day and then they could share with 
their friends or with you know people interstate or whatever. It's a little bit like television in the 1990s. Hey, Erin, right. <laughs> it's been great, great having you on the show. Thank you so much for telling us about all things Wordle and some of the history and connections and interesting links that are attached to it as well. We'll put a link up to your article on the conversation on our website and, and good luck with the word today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. That was Erin Sevo from Flinders University talking all things Wordle. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. And this song, wow, this is one of my favourites. It's Sons of the East with, you might think, it has this great sense of journey between place to place. Hope you enjoy and hope you're going well. It's 8.05am after the break. Bit of a change of theme and conversation, talking with Steve Cook about contemporary understandings of the Holocaust in light of the Candle Foundation's recent report. 3CR Monday Breakfast. Why you come and go so fast Got the twinkle in my eye I guess I'm coming around at last What you doing on my breath so bad I think I died I was saving all my love What you gonna put me through
just wanna hold you And maybe you might think I never cared at all Can we go back to the start? Sons of the East with, you might think, this is 3C, our Monday breakfast. It's great to have your company on the show. Ah, love it. Really love that song so much um, about moving between places and, and all the people who we're connected to. It resonates pretty strongly. It's Monday morning. We've been talking about Wordle. We've been talking about conservation. And now we're going to shift the dial a little and look at contemporary understandings of the Holocaust. From 1933 to 1945, the Holocaust saw approximately 6 million Jewish people killed in an act of genocide. And unlike many other international atrocities, the Holocaust is an event that is known and understood by the majority of Australians. That's according to the most recent Gandalf Foundation survey into Holocaust knowledge and awareness, with 80% of Australians knowing when the Holocaust occurred and 67% of Australians aware of what it means. But for younger Australians, it's a slightly different picture with 30% of millennials having little to no knowledge of the Holocaust compared to 15% of baby boomers. Joining me to talk about the survey findings and what they say about contemporary understandings of the Holocaust is one of the members of the study's research team and Associate Professor of Cultural Heritage and Museum Studies, Stephen Cook. Stephen, thanks for your time this morning and coming on the show. Yeah, good morning. Nice to be with you. Steve, I wanted to start by asking if you can paint a bit more of a picture of that generational difference that really comes through quite strongly in the report and and how this relates to our understanding of the Holocaust. Thanks. I think what what you've done is you've you've painted what's actually a really quite complex uh, picture. And as you said, um, the majority of Australians know that the Holocaust happened between 1933 and 45. Um, but what we found in the survey was that um, older generations have uh, perhaps a better factual knowledge of the Holocaust um, but than the millennials or, or younger generations. But we also found that millennials uh, had what we defined as a, as a greater Holocaust awareness. So although they not, may not know as much about the facts of the Holocaust, they actually acknowledge the, the kind of scale of the Holocaust and also uh, really support Holocaust education. So although they know, might not know as much about the facts, they actually care more about the Holocaust than, than some of those older generations. So it's a really uh, complex picture. It's a really complex picture. And, and in the report, some of that additional care and interest and concern about the, the impact of the Holocaust 
you've connected that with how young people and millennials specifically may use the internet and online communication quite differently to baby boomers and the content that they're engaging with. That's true. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting is that not only uh, is there a really interesting kind of correlation between um, the kind of sources of information that um, people are accessing, one of the things that the survey found was that you know, there's overwhelming support for compulsory Holocaust education in schools, for example, uh, and also huge support for um, Holocaust um, museums. But what's really interesting is that very few people in Australia have actually been to um, Holocaust museums, either in Australia uh, or um, overseas. And one of the things that's really interesting is there's, a, there's quite a strong correlation between people who engage with um, Holocaust museums uh, and who have done specific Holocaust education at school and those higher levels of Holocaust awareness. Um, and then what's really interesting there is that uh, those people who exhibit higher levels of Holocaust awareness um, also show um, higher levels of um, what we call in the report kind of pro-social attitudes towards First Nations, Australians, um, other um, religious minorities or asylum seekers and, and refugees. So they show um, high levels of empathy, a kind of warmth of feeling towards minority groups. So it's a really, again, a really interesting and complex picture. It is. And I think what's it is. Yeah. I can do continue. No, keep going, Stephen. I think what's really interesting is from the report as well is that generally the the, the facts, if you like, of, of what happened in Europe are really well known or generally well known. Um, but what's not quite so well known is the the Australian connections to the Holocaust. So one of the things that we tried to do in the, the survey was was not only understand what people knew about what happened in in Europe, but also uh, our own connections to the Holocaust. And, and that was and, and that was so, one of the that was one of the big aims of the study as well too, wasn't it? To really capture awareness of, of Australia's specific link um, to the Holocaust. Um, what did what did you find on that front? Well, generally, the the knowledge of Australia's connections to the Holocaust was much lower than for the, 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 the kind of the facts, if you like, of, of what happened in Europe. So um, 17% could identify the passengers on the, the Daenera. Um 16% knew who William Cooper was. 11% knew that uh, the Evian Conference Australia refused to accept more Jewish refugees. And, and 17%, uh, sorry, 7% knew the, the, the statistic that Australia is home to pro probably the largest per capita number of Holocaust survivors outside Israel. So what, what that tells us, I think, and it's actually something that's quite... Uh, that, that is uh, similar findings, or there has been similar findings in similar studies in the US, the UK and, and Canada, is that uh, although our education has focused... Um, I think, on, on the Holocaust per se, what it hasn't done so well is to try and make those connections with, with our own history. And, and one of the things that we uh, wanted to explore in the survey was that the, the Holocaust is actually a really intimate part of Australian um, history. And so if we can make those uh, connections uh, that, that really uh, kind of resonates, if you like, with Australian history, then it makes it much easier for a, a, a kind of broader conversation about why the Holocaust is uh, relevant 
uh, not only um, from a historical perspective, but also from a contemporary perspective too. I'm really fascinated to hear your perspectives on how we can build those direct links and connections around our own awareness and understanding of, of how um, Australia's history ties in with that of the Holocaust. And for me, I mean, I have a, a direct connection or relationship to the Holocaust. My granny, who's now 96 years old, she's a Holocaust survivor and managed to escape from what was Boyton, now Bittem, on the German-Poland border to England with kinder transport and then made her way out to Australia a number of years after that. And um, I would say that even if it's not directly mentioned in conversation, the, the impact of that period of time, it's always there in one way or another when, when we're talking together. And it's uh, it's something that has, yeah, shaped connections and realities across across my family. And But I, I found, um, yeah, from having that connection, I have, I suppose, a, a unique insight into um, into the Holocaust or, as, or a personal connection into it, maybe as a way of putting it. And I also think back to potentially when I was a teenager and when school, as a school, we went one time to the Melbourne Holocaust Museum and it was an incredible experience hearing from a number of Holocaust survivors and for people who don't necessarily have that direct connection within their family. I know that it was really moving for um, the group of teenagers that went along to the museum on that day and there were a number of very um, wet eyes on the on the bus back to the school and now that we're at this point where uh, Holocaust survivors, like my granny, but, uh, are at a much more senior age and yep. we're at a point where we're um, going to, to lose that generation of individuals, how do we keep that connection and those stories um, alive and, and how do we ensure that there's the, um, the setting for people to engage with those personal accounts and, and link that as well back to Australia's own relationship with the Holocaust too? That's such a great, great question, and I think you know, one of the things that, that we would stress is that the Holocaust is part of the Australian story. You know, this is the story of people who live in our streets and in our neighbourhoods. Uh, it's the story of the actions or inactions of our, our, our government. So those intimate connections are really, really strong and, and really, really important. But as you say, you know, Holocaust education um, has um, had, it, had its focus, I suppose, uh, the importance of survivor testimony and the engagement with uh, a survivor at hearing their story, hearing about their first-hand experiences has been uh, transformative for uh, so many uh, people. What we found in the, the survey as well is that not many people have had that opportunity. So, you know, not many people have had the privilege of uh, speaking with a, with a survivor. Not many people have had the opportunity to go to uh, the Jewish Holocaust Centre in, in Melbourne or the Sydney Jewish Museum and have that experience. So you know, one of the things that we try to do in the report is to pull out some recommendations about um, both Holocaust education and engagement with uh, museums. So one of the things we wanted to do in terms of education is probably put a little bit more emphasis through the education system on those Australian connections and to really kind of make sure that people are uh, aware of how important this is to the Australian story. And, and, you know, good education is about making connections with where people are at the moment and, um, and people's you know, existing knowledge. So the Holocaust didn't happen 
uh, you know, back there, um, uh, over there and back then. It happened to people, you know, in our street, in our neighbourhoods. Uh, it happened, you know, through the actions of our, of our government. Um, one of the things that absolutely is really pressing for Holocaust education is, is, the, is the passing of the survivor um, community and, uh, and what will happen uh, post then. So uh, I know that um, museums such as the Jewish Holocaust Centre, such as the Jewish um, Museum in Sydney, are putting you know, really um, significant efforts into uh, recording survivors, thinking about different ways of providing access to that, that testimony. Uh, so, for example, Sydney Jewish Museum are working with the Shoah Foundation in, in the States to do uh, basically holograms of, of survivors. Uh, the Jewish Museum in Melbourne has taken a survivor, John Hustle, back to, uh, to Poland uh, and recorded his uh, experiences and, and his uh, kind of reliving, if you like, of, of his experiences during, during the Holocaust so that though these stories aren't lost because you know we are at a, a really kind of you know important stage in in history and and where that that kind of contemporary history where we uh, where we know the people who experienced it uh, uh, we won't have those um, people sadly around for very much longer you've talked about the importance of representing the Holocaust as something that just didn't happen over there and, and then and the challenges of really framing the impact on 21st century Australia and then also to how yeah how the Holocaust uh, uh, and its impact also presents itself in in day-to-day life as well too wondering thinking about the how the Holocaust is taught and how it's communicated um, yeah going uh, into the future whether is anything's what we would, what you would see is the best approach to how we actually frame that that's a really interesting question too I, I mean I think that there's um, there's a balance that needs to happen. Obviously, that there's really important. Um, you know, we we can't. We need to have the balance of, of teaching about what happened. Um, you know, in the Holocaust, but also it's kind of contemporary Australian uh, connections. And I was I was thinking, you know, for, for so long it was, it's something that you know, not many people talked about. And I was thinking about my own history. I, I grew up in the in the UK, and I had a you know my grandparents. Uh, had you know, uh, um, you know my, my grandfather was on a minesweeper in the Mediterranean during the Second World War, and my my nan built um, aeroplanes um, uh, for the war effort, and so I kind of grew up with these quite heroic stories about, in, in this case, Britain at war, uh, and I knew that my next door neighbour uh, had been in the army, uh, but it wasn't until he died that uh, we found out that he was one of the the first people into the concentration camp at Bergen Belsen when it was liberated, because we didn't really talk about those kind of connections. And I, I think one of the things that's really important is that we need to think about these histories in in, in, in all its complexity, um, and that includes uh, you know reflecting on again what was happening in Australia uh, at that time and its continual re- uh, relevance today. 
It's Monday morning, Steve, and as people are making their way off to, to school or to university or, or to work, they're getting on with the rest of their day. What is it from the report that you would really like them to, to remember? What would, you like them, what would you like to stick with them as they go into their day and the Holocaust is on their mind? I'd really like them to, to think and, and to remember that it is part of our story. Uh, it is, isn't something that just happened yeah, over there back then. It, it happened to people, as I said, in, in our streets, in our communities, the actions of, of our government. And I, I'd really encourage people to you know, go to the uh, Jewish Holocaust Centre in Melbourne when it um, reopens. It's closed for redevelopment at the moment. Uh, but, to, but to go to uh, some of the online resources that, that they have, uh, if you're in Sydney, um, visit the, the, Jewish, uh, the Sydney Jewish Museum and, and start to you know, engage more with, with these kind of stories because it, it's part of our history too. Steve, I really appreciate your time this morning, your analysis, your work on the report. It's been a pleasure having you on 3CR Monday Breakfast. No, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. Stephen Cook from Deakin University there talking about the findings from the Gandalf Foundation's recent study into contemporary understandings of the Holocaust. It's 8.25am. We're fast coming to the end of today's show. Now, it's another song that definitely conjures up feelings and thoughts of travel and destinations, but this one really about the different possibilities. It's Laredo by Band of Horses. 3CR, Monday Breakfast. Our breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radio. breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. Oh
Laredo by Band of Horses. It's been a pleasure having your company today on 3CR Monday Breakfast. If you'd like to hear any of the interviews from today's show, whether it's with Tiffany Kosh on synthetic biology and uh, conservation or Aaron Sebo and the Wordle Phenomenon or Stephen Cook, who we just spoke to about well, about contemporary understandings of the Holocaust. It'll be available online, 3cr.org.au. My name is Evan Wallace. I hope that you have a great day, a great week ahead. 31 degrees today, but a cool change coming over the next few days and time to be able to, yeah, time to be able to just take a little bit of a breather from this hot, stifling weather. It's been great. It's been wonderful. Coming up next is Women on the Line. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out... Aaron. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.